Let us pray. O Lord, our governor, whose glory fills all the world, we commend this nation to your merciful care that we might be guided by your providence and dwell secure in your peace. Grant to the president of this nation, the governor of this commonwealth, and to all in authority, wisdom and strength to know and do your will. Fill them with the love of truth and righteousness and make them continually mindful of their calling to serve this people in a reverent obedience to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Uh, Pastor Nick mentioned uh, that scripture is afflicting. And uh, we, it is, it is doing that to me right now as I consider what I'm about to teach. Um, this week, we are looking at what Christian fidelity looks like in submission to authority. In the pastoral epistle, St. Paul mentions four spheres of authority and submission. The church, the family, government, and slavery. No easy task for today. We discuss authority in the church uh, when we discuss uh, the ordained offices and ordained ministries of the church. And because of that, we also touched a little bit on the sphere of family. So we're, we're going to uh, skip those today and go right to the two easy ones. Um, and I'm going to be just frank with you up front. We have difficult passages today. We are going to look at Christian fidelity in the two institutions of, of slavery and government. And our, our passages are uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, 6, 1 through 2, Titus 2, 9 through 10, and Titus 3, 1 through 2. Our outline for today's class is God's delegation of authority, uh, just an overview of scriptural authority in general, obedience and slavery, obedience and government, and okay, and then we'll just kind of summarize from that. I am sticking as much as I can to uh, the general um, in order to get a overview of authority and submission. Fair warning. So if you're looking for things that you can tweet out about me later, I'm, I'm trying not to give you that. Um, let's, let's get started with uh, Holy Scripture's picture of human authority in general. Authority is a hierarchy with God as the ultimate authority over everything. We have to start there. All other authority given to human beings is delegated authority. Therefore, as delegated authority, it is limited in its scope and it is bound to God's purposes. This is the foundation for uh, what theologian Abraham Kuyper, uh, his, his framework of understanding God's delegated authority in the world, which he called sphere sovereignty. Under sphere sovereignty, Kuyper taught that God is the only true sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he has given us distinct but overlapping spheres or domains 
such as the family, the state, education, art, business, etc., which have their own authority delegated to it by God for the purpose of human flourishing. For example, consider a father who is also a bivocational pastor. He cannot tell his parishioners to take two thank you bites of dinner or else they lose their story that night. (laughs) But his church, furthermore, can't tell his boss as a bivocational pastor how to run their business. Nor can his boss dictate changes to the liturgy. In each one of those spheres of business, family, and church, there are different rules and authorities given to that sphere by God. And so, this father who is a bivocational pastor has an authority that is bound to the sphere that he is working in. As a pastor, he has one authority in the church. As a family, he has another authority in his family. And in his work or his other vocation, he is actually under the authority of someone else and submits to that authority. So if you just think about all the, the social circles that you find yourself in, you, you know instinctively that you are in those circles. When you are in them, you are playing by different rules, so to speak. So that's, that's the basic very general overview. There is an, an authority in God himself, because he's God, and it is our ultimate authority. And then for the purpose of um, human flourishing and goodness and beauty and truth, he delegates authority into um, to the state, to the family, uh, education, business, art. There is an overlap in these spheres, but they are distinct. They have to play well together. Um, But they have their own set of rules and authority. So, um, with that, let's jump right in. Obedience in the institution of slavery. Titus 2, 9 through 10. Teach slaves to be submissive to their own masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing perfect fidelity so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. So, difficult passages. And um, just because of where we are in history and culture, we, we need to clear away a little bit of clutter before we dive right in so that we can consider them correctly. Um, there's, uh, 
there's more than two, but I'm going to consider two ways that I've, I hear often that these passages are mishandled in preaching and teaching. Um, and they're going to be on opposites, so there's a continuum here. Um, the first is that we can't simply assert, as I've heard, and probably some of you all have as well, that, well, slavery was different back then. And, and, what they, and what people usually mean, without trying to say it, is that it was different than the chattel slavery that we're familiar with because of America's history. Chattel slavery, if you're not familiar with the term, is where not only slaves, but their children and their children's children is considered the property of their owners. Now, it is true that... Uh, in, in the ancient world, they utilized various types of slavery. It, it, it wasn't the same across the board. At the same time, very early Roman law stated that a slave has no personhood. And so just because we say, well, they, it wasn't chattel slavery as we know it, we, we can't we can't just be dismissive of the institution of slavery in the ancient world. They were not human, according to the law. Slaves were not human beings. This changed over time. Slaves gained more and more rights over time. Um, and, and I think you could probably find an influence from the church there. But, but let's, let's not excuse our texts as we were wont to do to soften it. Slavery did not treat human beings as human beings. One of the ways that, um, a variation of this that I've heard a lot, um, is we get to a text about slavery and whoever's doing the preaching or teaching or um, basically leapfrogs over the text and says, well, slavery was like an employer-employee relationship. And that is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. Is there application that we can possibly glean from these passages for employment? Sure. But we have to do the work of getting into the text and understanding what it's saying to make that application. And it's probably just better not to to go there. So we can't be dismissive of the text by simply saying, well, it was different. That's the first way on one end of the spectrum. To do so flattens the reality of ancient slavery and is dismissive of the common abuse that they suffered. Now on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, I've heard this a lot too, is that to simply assert that because the authors of Holy Scripture promote slavery, their argument, not mine, slavery promotes, or Holy Scripture promotes slavery. Frankly, Holy Scripture is an error. And we should reject, if, if not just those parts of Scripture, Scripture as a whole. I, I hope I have to spend less time with this one. Um, we are bound in, in our confessions and our, our, however we understand them, in our formularies, that Holy Scripture is the very Word of God. And we are, going to, we are going to look at that idea when we get to 2 Timothy, actually. Um, this isn't an option for us. 
reality is far more complex than what these two opposite assertions make it out to be. And we have to deal with that. As Christians who believe in the God-given inspiration of Scripture, we have to deal with the tension of slavery as it's presented in Scripture and then interpret these passages in light of what the whole canon of Scripture teaches us. Canonical interpretation. I'm going to try to do that really quickly. We'll see how it goes. It is true that Holy Scripture does not matter-of-factly, if you're looking for one explicit statement, condemn slavery. But just as I mentioned, this has led to a continuum of responses for how we should deal with the fact that Scripture discusses slavery openly. That goes from openly promoting slavery to being dismissive of it and trying to soften the text to outright rejecting Scripture as a whole. My position is that scripture is realistic about the sinfulness of human beings while subverting the institution of slavery itself. To see this in scripture, we have to go back to the beginning. Genesis 1 is a crescendo that begins with chaos and disorder and ends with the installation of human beings as God's image-bearing royal priests in the Garden of Eden. Their task is to exercise a dominion over creation, dominion being a key word in this, that reflects God's holiness, glory, beauty, and benevolence throughout creation. They are to cultivate the earth to be like Eden. But in Genesis 3, we see their failure. And because of the fall, their sin ravages their relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. And then in Genesis 4, we read about the first recorded act of post-fall dominion. Cain murders his brother, Abel. God's design for dominion was shalom, the flourishing of human beings and their world. After the fall, this becomes inverted, and rather than dominion, we see domination. There is the, this domination, which is a violently brutalizing of others, in order, not in order to promote the flourishing of humanity and creation, but of the self and the individual. Slavery is one expression of a Genesis 4 domination rather than a Genesis 1 and 2 dominion. From creation, we skip ahead to covenant, namely the Mosaic law. And in the law, we find rules and regulations regarding Israel's treatment of slaves. This may seem to be an affirmation of slavery at first reading from Scripture. But consider this. The core of the Mosaic Law is what? The Ten Commandments, right? What are the Ten Commandments? They are expressions of God's moral and ethical nature, which I've said before, one way that we can understand that then is that they express and show us the kind of life that God intends for us to live. And if you're following 
the arguments so far. Thus, they show us what a flourishing life looks like. Now, apart from the Big Ten, there's roughly 600 more laws that uh, come as a part of this. The tradition says there's 613 laws in the Mosaic Covenant. I haven't counted them, so I'm just I'm going to rely on tradition for that one. Um, it's a lot. And these other laws are what we call case laws. It's a legal term. Their purpose is to apply the Ten Commandments to the civic, social, and religious life of the Israelites. The spheres of Israelite life. And while we are certainly uh, meant to learn from these laws, all scripture is profitable, as again we'll see in Second Timothy, they are indeed limited in their scope. And when it comes to the case laws and slavery, sorry, when it comes to the case laws and slavery, it's actually Jesus' teaching regarding divorce that Jacob preached on not too long ago that is very instructive. Because in Matthew 19, Jesus teaches that uh, Pharisees come up to him trying to uh, entrap him about divorce. And they ask whether divorce is allowed or not. And he says, um, going by memory and, and paraphrasing here, like essentially his response to them is that the case laws allowing divorce were not expressions of God's intent for flourishing marriage. It is not the way that it's supposed to be. It was given that way in the law as a way to mitigate the effects of the sin brought about by our hardened hearts. And I would say most of these case laws, these 600 other laws, are that because they're the application of the Ten Commandments to the the life of Israelites. Most of them are not you know, we separate the Big Ten for a reason. They are laws of mitigation. This is what we see in the laws about slavery. It is not an expression of God's intent for human flourishing. It is a mitigation of our hardness of hearts and sinfulness. Indeed, most, if not all, laws regarding slavery were protective of the slave rather than the master. Hebrew slaves were to be freed, no strings attached, every seven years. It was called the year of Jubilee, Exodus 21.2. If a slave was injured by their master, there, there was a requirement in the law that that slave be freed. Again, no strings attached, Exodus 21, 26, and 27. The civic penalty for slave trading was death. Exodus 21:16. And if a slave escaped, they were granted freedom and asylum from their masters. Deuteronomy 23:15 through 16. We see some of these laws as being the explicit background to St. Paul's teaching in the epistles. 
Paul being a, a, a good Pharisee who knew all 613. 1 Timothy 1.10, for example, uh, which we did read in the beginning of this class, but I, I, I made no mention of it, knowing that this day was coming, forbids slave trade as being inconsistent with the gospel. It is inconsistent with the gospel to kidnap and dominate other images of God. We see the same tension between recognizing reality and subverting slavery that we saw in the Mosaic Law and, and prior in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-one, where Paul writes, Were you a slave when you were called? <laughs> Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Indeed, the entire epistle to Philemon is an example of both this scriptural subversion and, as we saw last week, St. Paul's command to not rebuke but exhort those who are truly in the family of God. Just as one excerpt, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Welcome him as you would welcome me. And then, of course, there is that grand statement of Galatians 3.21, which obliterates all dividing walls between us as the family of God. There is no slave nor free in Christ. We are all equal. You see, the, the clear picture that emerges from Scripture is that it nowhere promotes slavery, However, it does recognize the reality of slavery within a fallen world. And because of that, works to mitigate the effects of that institution in the world. So with this background, we can now look to our passages from the pastorals. Again, teach slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They are not to talk back, not to pilfer, but to show complete and perfect fidelity so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Savior. Titus 2, let, uh, now First Timothy, let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters. Um, sorry. But all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Remember, St. Paul's teaching on the obedience of slaves is still within the canonical context. Of, under, of understanding slavery as we've just worked through. Slaves ought to seek their freedom. But what if freedom is not possible? Or what if it's not yet possible? Uh, in, in the Roman world, an escaped slave did not have the benefits 
that they received in the Mosaic Law. At worst, they were branded with F-U-G on their head and sent back. At worst, they were crucified or tortured and murdered. It wasn't always simple to disengage slavery from society. So what do they do in the meantime? What is the slave's posture towards their master until freedom comes either legally or in death? 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 21 is, is instructive. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned them. I told you it's a lot of difficult text today. Into which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then slavery is actually an application of, of this. And he says, were you a slave when you were called? We read it earlier. Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. There seems to be an exception to this hard teaching here. There are exceptions. One there's that given in the passage that slaves ought to gain their freedom I would say that another exception here is being in an abusive relationship flee the divorce exceptions of abandonment, abuse adultery but we have to be careful with these exceptions because they're very obvious right And yet our natural tendency is to self-justify. We delude ourselves into thinking that we're the special case that doesn't require us to submit to the hard text of Scripture. We all do it. I do it. So there are exceptions. You're probably not one of them. The key phrase in St. Paul's argument so far is show perfect fidelity. The question we have to ask ourselves is to whom? Who is the object of our fidelity? In this passage, there is uh, certainly a sense in which the authority of the master is in view here. But I argued at the beginning of the class that all authority is delegated authority. And that necessarily means that there is a hierarchy of fidelity with God at the top. Perfect fidelity, then, is fidelity to God shown in our submission to the authorities that he has placed over us. For the purpose of flourishing. When we express submission to the authorities that God has ordained over us, we express our submission to God himself. And this is why St. Paul can say to submit to authority so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Our submission is like dress clothes and jewelry of the beauty of God's teaching and gospel. And says later that the name of God and the teaching, the, the gospel, sound doctrine, may not be reviled. That's from our two passages earlier. And so even here, by the way, this came up in last week's text. I gave you all a break from bringing this up. But even here, 
St. Paul links our fruitful behavior with the reputation of the gospel in the world and the reputation of the church. Let's be clear. Scripture is concerned about justice. Do not make any mistakes about that. Unjust authority and abuse will be answered to. Perhaps it's because Holy Scripture guarantees that justice will be meted out that we see texts like this where scripture seems to be far more concerned not with the situations we find ourselves in but with our character and our fidelity to Christ in the midst of difficult situations we know the ending Christ wins so that difficult truth then is a bridge which brings us to the subject of submitting to the institutions of government. Yay. Let's go. Remind the congregation to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show courtesy to everyone. St. Paul is agonizingly consistent with his calls to be submissive to governmental authority. Romans 13, 1 through 5, I'll read an abbreviated version. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Therefore, one must be subject not only because of government's authority to bear the sword, but also because of conscience. And actually, in this passage, we see Scripture's explicit teaching on this idea of delegated authority, right? There's no mincing of words here. To rebel against this authority is to rebel against God. But this doesn't mean that such, a, that such authority is absolute. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about injustice. But again, consider how easy it is for you and for me to self-justify our rebellious hearts. Before we go into all the ways in which we can avoid this text, let us remind ourselves of the context that St. Paul was in when he wrote it. If you can remember all the way back to our first class. First century Rome was no Western democracy or republic. Despite the foundations that it did help to build for Western democracies and republics, It was, particularly at the time of the writing of the pastorals, Rome was, in fact, ran by an authoritarian emperor named Nero. And it was this very same emperor who would later martyr both St. Paul and St. Peter. 
This is the same Nero who used the great fire of 64 AD to blame and persecute Christians. And we read in Tacitus, a contemporary or several decades later, tell us, uh, he tells us what was happening at the very time that the pastoral epistles were being written. Christians were being martyred and, quote, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skin of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. Or they were nailed to crosses, or they were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for this spectacle. So let's be clear. Nero threw nightly parties in his garden and would set Christians on fire in order to light up the party with their burning corpses. For ambiance, I guess. And St. Paul writes, in the midst of this, be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Speak no evil. Speak evil of no one. Show courtesy to everyone. St. Peter similarly says, we'll get to that. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. That's a very key part, by the way. But For it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As slaves of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Folks, I don't know how else to say this, but that the very same Holy Spirit that inspired Peter to write honor the emperor knew that the very same emperor he referenced was going to crucify him upside down. There have been seven presidents in office since I was born. Do you know how many of them I can say I've never spoken evil of? Zero. I make it a sport. So that's how my spiritual walk is going. <laughs> and I know it's heavy. And so we're, we're thinking at this point, is there ever a time then that Christians can disobey the government and still be faithful to God? Yes. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. Exodus 1, 15 and 21, the Hebrew midwives disobey Pharaoh's command to slaughter the children that are born. 1 Kings 18.3 and 2 Kings 11.1-3, both of these detail stories where people hid those who were going to be killed by the government unjustly. Daniel 3.1-18 and 6.1-10, you guys would know those stories if they were up there, uh, the three Hebrew children and, and Daniel in prayer. It shows faithful Israelites refusing the demands of a government who tried to coerce them to worship and pray to other gods or you know, to apply it, no gods at all. 
And then in Acts 4 and 5, St. Peter and St. John face imprisonment for refusing to stop preaching the gospel. These are just a few examples. But we find these patterns throughout Scripture. And so I think we can say, based on the authority of Scripture, that civil disobedience is appropriate, at least in the preserving of life from the state's unjust bearing of the sword. When we reject the state's coercion to worship other gods or no gods at all. And in rejecting its attempt to completely silence the proclamation of the gospel. Are there other categories in which it's justified? Maybe. These are the ones that are clear. I think it's likely. But as we think through this, let me just add a few things to consider. Civil disobedience ought not be carried out through sinful means. The obvious example, right? This is the cliche, bombing abortion clinics. It's not the way to go. It's not the way to go. The the kingdom of God does not go forth in explosions. Second thing, note how in Daniel and Acts, the Acts of the Apostles passage, those who engaged in civil disobedience accepted the punishment inflicted upon them by the unjust state. If we're going to stand firm on our convictions, let us stand firm through it, the whole thing. In three, Scripture uniformly gives us examples of faithful believers living under governments whose political philosophy greatly differs from scriptural convictions without those believers responding in civil disobedience. See, the point in Holy, in Holy Scripture reminding us to be submissive to governmental authority is that the Holy Spirit knows our tendency will often be to do the opposite. That's why it says so. We don't need to be reminded of the commandments that are easily lived out. No one has a, <laughs> no one has a problem with authority until that authority asks you to submit to something you don't like. Bishop Steve reminded me of that. Actually, I think he was trying to say something about his spiritual authority. But it's true. One final issue regarding governmental authority, submission, and disagreement. I told you, as difficult as these texts are, I I can only stay on the surface for a lot of this. Just because a situation arises in which you disagree with the government but maybe doesn't rise to the level of civil disobedience doesn't mean you don't have a course of action. Or at least we here in this place have courses of action. We can submit to authority given to us, given to our government and act on our disagreements and convictions using whatever systems are in place to affect change. For us in the United States, that means making use of voting, attending town hall type events, joining a neighborhood watch, running for local offices, peaceful protests, and so forth. We have a wide array of options. In fact, much more than other countries have. And if I could just slide a little bit of my own ideology in there, the local we go, the better. The more local we are, the better. As I said, not everyone has such opportunities, historically or today. 
We ourselves are not guaranteed a future where we have these opportunities. And I'm not apocalyptic about these things. It's just stating the truth because our world is a sinful, broken place. But once again, it's helpful to note that Holy Scripture's concern is usually not in the situation we find ourselves in, but in our response to it. Whether we are a democracy, a republic, or a communist state, or an empire, Holy Scripture's concern is our fidelity to Christ. And the character and fruit that our faith bears as we trust and rest in God's sovereignty. So, how do we how do we summarize this? <laughs> if you guys know, please come up here and do it. <laughs> there is a hierarchy of authority in the world, and our sovereign Lord stands at the top and is our ultimate authority. The end goal of His authority is for the flourishing of all human beings. That's why things didn't end immediately after Genesis three. All authority given to humans or institutions, therefore, is delegated. Scripture calls on us to submit to this delegated authority as an act of worship and submission to God. Civil disobedience is, and as delegated authority, the authority given to each sphere or domain in life is limited and bounded. It is not absolute. Civil disobedience is sometimes necessary for us to faithfully submit to God's ultimate authority. In other situations, we can faithfully submit to authority while working for change through established means. And lastly, in all things, at all times, may we have as our goal the ability to rest in the goodness and sovereign love of God. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called them. Amen.